welcome back to another episode of Driven by Cause, the show where we sit down with thought leaders of today. I'd like to take a minute and give a quick shout out to my favorite thought leaders, our sponsors, Ariva and Microsoft. Without further ado, let's get right into it today. I'm, I'm joined by my fantastic co-host, Jay Fisk. Jay, how are you doing today? I am doing great, David. And how about you? And I'm excited to meet our guest. That's right, Jay. It is great to be back. Um, I'm really privileged to announce that Dr. Daniel Moss Cox has dedicated her career to working towards equality and social justice in the education sector. From her start as a teacher in the Bronx and, and Brooklyn to heading up multiple councils and organizations, such as Chief of Staff at the New York City Civil Liberties and as the President and CEO of the YWCA City of New York. This is just to name a few today. Today, she is the CEO of Oliver Scholars and our guest for this episode. Danielle, I could go on the list of the incredible accomplishments, but why don't you stop by telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey? Sure, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I think um, what you're doing is amazing and important for our sector, and I'm delighted to be joining you today. So I uh, grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan for the most part, lived in my mother's uh, family's home country of Barbados for a few years. I was a liberal arts major at Swarthmore without a clear uh, sense of what I was going to do after that. And in fact, my first job out of college was at an investment bank. And I was there for about nine months and I realized this was not my tribe. Uh, no, no shade to anybody who works in finance. And so, you know, my mother let me quit my job without having something lined up. There was a school in the Bronx that was looking for a sixth grade teacher uh, and someone to teach English and uh, social studies uh, to middle schoolers. And so I said, you know, this is going to be a temporary thing. <laughs> I'll, I'll, you know, give it a, a go for a year. And I kind of like fell in love with the school, with the kids. I had a wonderful principal who was an incredible mentor to me. And so that kind of shifted the trajectory of what I thought I wanted to do. It got me to teacher's college where I was focused on educational administration and leadership. And then slowly, you know, other doors began to open. You clearly have had an amazing career. I want to go back to that middle school start, however, that was your first foray into into education. Did you start in the middle school because that happened to be the job opening or did you particularly, were you, were you seeking something in, in middle school? I knew that I was not uh, interested in working with really little kids. And as a somewhat recent college graduate, I felt like I was going to be too close in age to high school students to be taken seriously. And I also looked a lot younger at the time. So that's kind of like what got me into uh, the middle school program. They were independent enough to be able to do some things on their own, but still open and receptive to being guided and nurtured in ways that were meaningful to me. And, you know, shout out to that first sixth grade class, because I'm still in touch with a lot of those young people. Um, so many of them have gone on to do some amazing things themselves. It's just nice to see what happens on the other side. And that inspired your your work today. Who who knew back then that this is where it would lead? 
Yeah, I mean, I really kind of thought it was going to be temporary. Listen, I have been the beneficiary of amazing nonprofit organizations my whole life. I, you know, went to day camp and sleepaway camp through a settlement house in my neighborhood, Goddard Riverside. I got a lot of leadership exposure from the YMCA of Greater New York, you know, it was Youth of the Year. They sent me to Tokyo for a summer. I did the lead program in business at the University of Maryland as a high school student. So all the while I was having these doors opened up in part because of my mother's tenacity, but also as a result of great nonprofit organizations. I never really thought of that as a career or a job. And so it was after I left the school in the Bronx and was really kind of like focusing on my graduate studies full time, I saw an ad for a nonprofit organization that was doing some work with, you know, so-called at-risk middle school students in Brooklyn. It was there that kind of like the seed was planted and doing that work that, you know, maybe I could lead a nonprofit organization someday. Maybe I could build a future for myself and my family, really launch a career in, in this sector in particular. Danielle, first of all, congratulations on a number of things. And I think we're going to hear that a lot, but to be an influencer to sixth graders is probably one of the most powerful things a human can be as a teacher influencing these kids. And I I remember, I still do remember my fourth grade teacher, how, how influential she was. So, you know, congrats on that. You know, another congrats is, you know, it, it's very hard to get in and you have to be somebody very special to be invited to speak at a TED Talks. And you got that opportunity and you talked about the forgotten middle what does that mean and why does it matter? You know, so <clears throat> as, a, as a student and even as an educator, um, I think we are often focused and measured on two sets of students, right? Our highest performing students who get a lot of the accolades, attention. I think a lot of educators, right, may hang their hats on the achievements of their students. And so high-performing students in some communities, I should say, tend to um, get a lot of focus. When we talk about teacher and school accountability, what we're really focusing on is how much we can move the needle for the lowest-performing students. Mm. But the vast majority of our kids are somewhere in the middle. If you're not um, a discipline problem, if you're not uh, failing any classes, like you're passing, maybe you're a C, B minus student, no one's worried about you. And no one's really thinking oftentimes about what you could do with a little bit more investment uh, of, of time, of encouragement, of opportunity. And so that's why I think, you know, the Forgotten Middle came to be such a special group for me because I was a very mediocre middle school student, which, you know, drove my mother and my teachers crazy. It's like, I could have done more, but I was socializing <laughs> and, you know, being a 12 or 13 year old girl. And so, um, you know, academic achievement um, wasn't at the top of my, you know, priority list at that time. And I had teachers who saw that in me and took the time to encourage me. But I also had teachers who kind of wrote me off. Um, and in fact, a version of my TED Talk that uh, didn't make it to the final cut, I talked about uh, running into my seventh grade science teacher outside of the Schomburg uh, library in New York City as a college student. And I was there doing um, some research over a school break. And 
he wanted to know why I was at the library. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I'm a, a Swarthmore student. I'm, you know, double major history and English. And I'm here doing some research for a, a project that I'm working on. And he said, really? Because like you were no big deal. You know, how did, <laughs> how did, how did you pull wow. that off? Um, you know, ouch, wow. right? <laughs> Early influencers in your life can, you know, if you don't, uh, sometimes you just can't take them seriously, right? Because because they really don't know what your full potential is, and uh, they they may they may size you up completely wrong. You spent a lot of years working in in the college uh, access success space, and uh, you know what are you what excites you about that? Obviously, you got started in middle school, but you know now you started working in the college space, so. What excites you about that? What barriers students of color face? Uh, you know, how is Oliver, let's get into Oliver's scholars a little bit. How is Oliver's scholars uh, working to address the challenges of, of students of color? You know, one of the things I said previously was that in some communities, high potential students get a lot of attention and resources. But in a lot of black and brown communities here in New York City, um, those students are also overlooked and, and under valued in terms of what they are capable of. The vast majority of Oliver Scholar students um, have not been identified for gifted and talented education programs in their home schools. The number one reason that Black and Brown students are underrepresented in terms of nominations for gifted and talented education is really teacher bias. There was a research study mm -hmm. that looked at national statistics. I think it came out in about 2017. And so that's something that we can do something about. There are some things that we can't control for, but making sure that young people have access to opportunity um, and the information that their families need. When I was uh, about three or four years old, my mother got a, a research position at Rutgers University. For my formative years, I spent a lot of time on a, an, on a university campus, right? And that became a, a part of my identity. Like no one ever asked me, oh, you know, do you think you'll go to college someday? Like the conversation from the time I was a very small child was, hey, what college do you think this kid is going to go to? And I think just that little tweak in terms of not will you go to college, but what college will you attend really right. begins to create a different sense of self in the imagination of young people. You know, when uh, we take our kids to visit our alma maters and get them like oh. those little college onesies, that's messaging. Yeah. Right. It's, it's messaging sure. that you belong here. You belong in this space. Um, and so there are a lot of amazing, brilliant young people whose families don't have college experience, who themselves have never navigated, um, you know, the college admissions process, who, despite all kinds of indicators that they will be successful at college, just don't get that messaging. And mm -hmm. I think that's part of what Oliver does. So we identify high potential students. You have to have a 90% average or above in order to qualify um, to go through the admissions process. And then we place those students in independent day and boarding schools, um, mostly on the East Coast. I okay. think our families are not 
aware of what their kids are up against in terms of preparation and access to resources. You know, when we do um, our summer institute with our students, we spend a week at a boarding school. This year, some of the parents were looking out the window because we bring them for a day on campus just to have that exposure. Which building is the school? The campus is vast. There are multiple, the whole campus is the school, right? Oh, why are we on a college campus when my kid is only 12? No, this is a high school. And so, you know, I've worked with young people in uh, New York City who were ready for algebra as seventh and eighth graders. It wasn't even offered, right? Their, their schools didn't even have the resources to provide the content. So can you imagine being ready for the next level, but having to sit and repeat information that you're already familiar with because your school doesn't have the resources to kind of provide you with access to that kind of education. And interestingly enough, a lot of our kids don't get into New York City's tested uh, specialized high schools, you know, but they can go off to these amazing independent schools um, and thrive and do well and go on to have an incredible impact on on their communities. That's incredible. I truly believe this education foundation is so so essential for so many people, but I'm really glad you're focusing on such a great thing. All of a scholar states it's a distinction among others. Access program is your commitment to providing transition support for the whole family, developing students, social emotional skills, and instilling an ethos of giving back. How does that organization address these commitments? A lot of organizations will focus on the young person as though this is a singular experience, as as if your family is not part of your daily ecosystem. Um, But the reality is, right, that we may be sending students to schools where the economic divide is so vast that it can make our parents feel small, right? Mm -hmm. How do I go into a parent conference you know, I'm here, my my child is, has received this generous scholarship. I don't want to make waves. I may see something about my child's experience that I'm uncomfortable with and feel like if I use my voice, I could cost my child something, right? And also, like, what does it mean now to, to be who I am as a parent and have the experiences that I have had um, and now see my, my kid in this, you know, uh, completely different universe, having completely different experiences, but still want to maintain that sense of deep connection um, and and familial support. So I think it's foolhardy to say, you know, we're going to send a kid to a school like Dalton in New York City, for example, and not really do anything to prepare the the family um, for what that experience is going to be like. I didn't have an Oliver Scholars. I just had my mom, right? And so I did um, attend an independent school myself. So mm-hmm. this organization, in comparison to every other organization I've worked with, um, probably most mirrors my own personal experience. But I think the thing that I love and and appreciate about my mother was, you know, her strong commitment 
to making sure that I knew who I was, I knew where I came from, and I felt good about that. And the reality is that if a student comes to Oliver Scholars and is academically achieving at a level that qualifies them for this kind of experience, then something good is happening in their community. Something good is happening in their family. And a lot of times we take students out of their communities as though we're doing them a favor, right? In the process, we kind of devalue the communities that made them, right? And so, you know, a lot of my early speaking opportunities um, didn't come from my independent school. They came from my Black Baptist Church on 116th Street, right? We have to honor that. And we have to make sure that our young people feel good about who they are, you know, whether you're from the Dominican Republic or Haiti or, you know, the deep South, there's something of value in your community because you have value and you came from that neighborhood. We're not just trying to change your personal life, right? That's not the example that I got from my community. When you, when I have this opportunity, when I have this access, it's my responsibility to bring others along with me. And so that's a message that Oliver Scholars conveys to our young people and their families from the time that they begin this experience. Great, great message. We're, we're, and, and thank you for sharing that. We're going to shift gears just a little bit. We're going to give you a chance to kind of look in your crystal ball a bit. You spend some time in the nonprofit world. Now you've had a chance to experience that obviously as a leader in the nonprofit and nonprofit space. So what does the future look like to you, uh, you know, take a peek in that crystal ball. What does the future look like for nonprofits and even for your uh, specific organization within the nonprofit space? I love the social sector, right? The social sector has allowed me, this, you know, Black girl from 97th Street and Columbus Avenue, to, you know, have the title CEO, right? There mm -hmm. aren't a lot of Black women in our country who can um, tout that kind of acronym. Right. And so this the sector has been a gift to me because it's allowed me to um, act on my values, act on the things that I that I say are important. But it hasn't come without its challenges. Right. Um, we know that there are race and, and gender based um, pay disparities, just like in every other sector. And I think we're in an important moment following, you know, this kind of racial so-called reckoning that's been happening um, since George Floyd's murder in 2020. And that is like, who do we want to be in the future? You know, 85 percent of all board members are still white. Right. I think maybe four to five percent of um, nonprofit CEOs are people of color, right? And so we still have what a white colleague calls, you know, this uh, white capped mountains where the higher you go, the whiter it is and the lower you go, um, the, the browner um, the workforce is. There has been to me um, a misguided investment in like black leadership programs. Right. We're going to do a special certificate for black and brown leaders so that they can access these opportunities um, when we have nothing to do with the reason why we don't have access to those opportunities. And since black women are, are one of the most educated populations in, in the country. Right. It's not really a matter of education and preparation. It's a, around distribution of power and wealth right? As it is in so many um, areas of our society. I was talking to a colleague who's on a board 
And the board recently hired a CEO for an organization that I know has no experience in the content that the organization tries to address and no connection to the local community. But the board really liked the person, right? And so the way our ecosystem system works is boards are hiring for themselves more often than not than for communities. And often communities and staff that represent communities don't have a voice in making critical mission relevant decisions, you know, shape how the organization functions. So I think that we've made a lot of progress, kind of, sort of, but we still have a, a, a really far way to go. We use things like, you know, minimum giver gets to really exclude people who don't have wealth from the conversation, even though oftentimes that's where the expertise resides, right? Mm, and yeah. so how do we invite broad discourse around social issues, because I think I'm in rooms with people that I never would have contact with if it weren't for the social sector, right? Yeah. But, you know, what does power look like in those rooms? How do decisions get made in those rooms? How do we make sure that we are not paternalistically making decisions about communities we have no connection to? And the example I gave in, a, in another conversation was, you know, I live in the town of West Orange in New Jersey. There's there's another town not that far from me um, called Basking Ridge that's a, a very wealthy town, right? I don't get to go to Basking Ridge and make decisions about education, about health, about environmental issues. That's not my community. I don't live in that community. I don't I don't know what their issues are. But more often than not, we will allow people to come into black and brown communities and not even put in the sweat equity to really understand the underlying challenges facing people and yet position them to make really important decisions um, that can have a huge impact on people's lives. So I think um, there's a younger generation in our sector that's really starting mm -hmm. to push um, these kinds of conversations. And it's not that we want to get people away from the table, we want to add more chairs to the table so that more people, and, and so that we're better positioned to, to make the right calls if we really want to have the kind of impact that we say we, we'd we like to have. That's something that we're experimenting with at Oliver Scholars too, right? My board chair is not a woman of color. She's She's wealthy. We have very different experiences on so many levels, but we share values about this work. And she is a willing student on issues that aren't familiar to her. Um, and, and as am I, right? There are still things that I'm learning. We are trying to set a tone together of what it means for the broader community to really come together for what I think is an incredibly noble mission. You know, I don't think that education alone can cure everything. Right. We have to think about things like housing and access to health care and livable wages and that kind of thing. But do I think I would have had the kind of career that I've had without education? Absolutely not. Right. You know, it is still the single most impactful lever you can pull to change your life outcomes that, that I'm aware of. 
Yeah, it's a, it, it's truly a foundation. I mean, you, you got to start with the foundation, and then uh, you know, which brings me to the next question about you know we're living in a digital age. You're talking about young, younger people that are making really impactful changes and and having an opportunity to do that. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the terms of really fundraising because it's about awareness and donor stewardship? And what are some of the biggest changes? Danielle, that you'd like to see? This is a hard one, right? Because as an organization, we have a a tried and true community of donors who still respond in traditional ways, right? They're not going to do your crowdfunding on Facebook. (laughs) That's just, it's not a thing, right? They still get excited when they get a handwritten note from me acknowledging a gift. I think what we found out during the pandemic is that people still want the art of the ask to feel personal. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, we, you know, we did a, a a gala online, and this year we're going back to a, an in person gala because people want that sense of connection. I think we didn't realize as as a society, as a community, how much we needed to be in each other's physical presence until it wasn't an option. Isn't that Um, the know, We know that. (laughs) Yeah, so I I think, you know, we are gonna continue to kind of like, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? I think, you know, at the end of the day, you have to know your donors, right? get to know them, build relationships, because there are, you know, some folks on our associate board who do get really excited about crowdfunding and sharing their passion for this mission um, with their social media platforms. Um, And then there are still going to be donors who want a different kind of experience. And I think also, you know, it's hard to ask somebody for $25,000 over the computer and get it. (laughs) And have that be a yeah, you know, I, I will just tell you that if if they're you you can ask for it, but it's going to be people that are going to give it to you anyway. That you know, it's the right. people that you already have developed a a very long standing relationship with. Uh, they're they're in your camp, one hundred percent in your camp, whether you serve them a glass of wine and give them a you know give them a steak dinner at a gala or not. They're still in your camp. They're committed to you. Right. Uh, your board chair, for example, sounds like sounds like someone like that that would. It would do that but you're right it's the it's it's the ones in the middle the the casual i i could be convinced group right you could you could talk me into mm-hmm. helping you that they're the tough ones that are hard to reach because you don't have that you don't have that emotional connection uh, through the computer that you can get in a in a room where you can actually hear someone's story and i yeah. think you know the stories of our scholars are always going to be much more impactful than you know my story right because you feel exactly. as a donor that you're participating in a change in real time. Exactly. And so, yeah, so I think a lot of development departments, including my own, are trying different things. But really, at the end of the day, you have to listen to your supporters. You have to figure out ways to create an emotional experience, whether it's the internet or an in-person, you know, volunteer engagement, whatever it is. Um, People don't just write the check like they did, you know, when the United Way first started out and your CEO said, this is the charity we're going to give to and everybody. No, people want a sense of connection um, because that's what's going to distinguish my organization from the 40,000 or so other organizations in New York 
that are, you know, hoping to get the same dollars. Yeah, no, Danielle, I've seen it. I've sit on boards myself. It's all about engagement. And I could talk about a lot of stories on that. But you've had an opportunity uh, to be the CEO of a company and bring board members on. You've also had the opportunity and you're currently serving on the board of directors of the New York Women's Foundation. And you previously served on the board of managers for your alma mater, Swartworth College, which is great. Why is board services important to you as a nonprofit CEO? That's the first question. And what does good board engagement look like to you? Mm. Mm, those are great questions. So yeah, so being on the board of my alma mater was like the the honor of a lifetime. You know, I can remember being a first year student uh, sitting in the auditorium uh, for orientation and not even knowing like what a board of managers was and and what their role and function was in and how it was going to affect my um, experience as a student. It's important for me as someone who knows this sector so so well and so deeply to be at these tables because I bring a unique perspective from my vantage point as someone who's been the beneficiary of um, you know what it means to be a student at the school, even though all of our board members generally are are alumni, right? But we all come from different experiences, and so I think in order to serve the whole community, you have to have the whole community at the table when decisions are being made. And I, I would say that the the New York Women's Foundation. Um, I don't know if you've ever met Ana Oliveira. I hope that you'll. Uh, have the chance to interview her for this podcast. She has been such a light and and a mentor and even a donor when I was leading an organization focused on women and girls here in New York City. Someone who really is thoughtful about the impact of her thoughts, words, and actions, um, which is really refreshing to see. And so a lot of times, right, for obvious reasons that we all know, the board is, you know, primarily comprised of people who are in a financial position to give, but who may not um, be as familiar with the, the, the community's experiences, the nuances of what that means and what it feels like and what it looks like, what it takes to be an executive director. Um, so when a foundation is, you know, making a giving decision or discounting an organization because, you know, they haven't reached X, X, Y, Z level, um, you know, I, I think that my service and the service of others on the board who also work in the sector helps to create some balance. And the thing I love about the New York Women's Foundation is our commitment to um, seeding good ideas. Oftentimes, you know, a lot of foundations are on automatic pilot, right? And so they're writing the checks to the same large organizations and just assuming that something magical is going to happen. But if we look at the issues that we're trying to have some sort of impact on, you know, not a lot is changing. You know, it's like, and on the one sense, I feel like I've been doing good work and, you know, I have, um, you know, students who would say, yeah, you know, she she had an impact, but like, have I changed the trajectory of education for black and brown students in this country? No, I haven't. And so I think we start to shy away from innovation and innovation is risky. And the New York Women's Foundation is one of the few organizations that will invest 
in women and women of color in particular who have good ideas, but maybe don't have the data points lined up yet um, because they haven't had the investment. It's kind of like a chicken and an egg type of situation. Um, mm. So, so that's one of the reasons that work has been so meaningful to me. You know, Anna always says problems and solutions reside in the same communities. Wow. It's kind of like okay. I, I can't tell someone else how to fix their marriage. I don't live in your house. I don't know your spouse. I don't know your history, the dynamics, all of those kinds of things. And so, I think it's important for us to remember that problems and solutions reside in the same communities. I have a story that I like to tell. Um, I was talking to a friend's uh, younger cousin or niece. Um, she was about 10 years old at the time. And she was telling me about, she lived in North Carolina, and she was talking about her play grandmother. And I said, oh, you know, what's, what's, a, what's a play grandmother, right? So we're having this conversation. And she says, well, you know, she lives on my street. And all the kids go to her house after school. She gives us a snack and we have to do our homework. And we can't leave once we check in until our parents come home. And that's my play grandmother. And I said, oh, my God, this lady's running an after school program. right?" And I think that's just... Um, she's not getting funded, right? She's retired. She has the time, she has the space and she's doing it. And so sometimes when we think we have a good idea in the social sector, we assume that someone's like sitting there waiting to be saved by us. But people um, are, are steadily working to improve the conditions of their own lives. And sometimes if we listen and we partner, um, what we can build together um, can be much more meaningful. You have had a fascinating career. I mean, obviously, in a lot of different roles, but I want to give you a chance to kind of go into the wayback machine a little bit when you were a little girl. Uh, and I know, as your, you know, your mom was really pushing you for making education very important. When you were a little girl, what did you want to be when you grew up? As a younger child, I wanted to be an actress, and then I wanted to be a journalist because I. I found out I could talk a lot. And as you can see, I like to talk. Um, and as a high school student, I wanted to be a college professor. So, I, I so knew this... at 15 that I wanted to get a doctorate because you know my mother had a master's degree. My mother's sister had a master's degree, Columbia, NYU. But I said, you know, nobody has a doctorate, so I'm going to do that. <laughs> and, and here you are living the dream. And you think of so many, so many kids when they're young, they, you know, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a policeman. I want to be a, a nurse. You know, I, uh, you know, they, how many of them actually end up down that path? And then here you are proof that sometimes you end up down that path. And you know what? I think the difference is what people speak over you in your life. Right. And so whether it was, you know, my pastor, the late Reverend Dr. Wyatt T. Walker, who was chief of staff to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., whether it was my mother, whether it was my dad, who had a photography business when I was a kid, like everybody just expected a lot from me. You know, my grandfather had a sixth grade education. He had a dry cleaning business in Harlem. I can remember being eight years old and my grandfather saying to me, I want you to write the cleaning tickets today because you're handwriting is better than mine. Really? So like no shame on, on his part, like just this pride that, you know, I was his granddaughter and I could do something that he couldn't do, um, which, you know, he ran a business. So he, 
I don't know if he was just trying to suit me up or what, but just this idea that people, you know, all along my journey, you know, pointed to me and said, you know, you can, you can do something more. You know, Eileen O'Connor, shout out YMCA, sees me one day when I'm volunteering after school and says, what do you think about Japan? And I was like, I don't. <laughs> so, you know, what, what, how would you feel about going to Tokyo for the summer? And I was like, okay. Now, mind you, this was not a done deal because I was going to have to compete with other kids at multiple YMCAs across the city in order to get that opportunity. But Eileen was pretty confident that it was going to be a slam dunk. And so I internalized that, you know, and, and I think, you know, just having mentors who looked like me and mentors who did not look like me. I have a, a, a mentor who's actually also um, a, a Swarthmore graduate, a different class. He's probably old enough to be my dad. You know, one of the things I love about Stephen is he always, as I was making career decisions, because um, I worked for him when I was at Johns Hopkins, he always saw something bigger for me than I saw for myself. He was just like, I want you to apply for this job. And I would say, I don't think I'm qualified for that job. And he'd be like, oh, it, it's fine. You know, go for it. Position yourself. Um, and it was that kind of, you know, encouragement that, you know, has gotten me to take risks. Now, you know, like everybody else, I don't get every opportunity that I go for. I've, I've had a lot of, you know, I, I'm, I'm a product of what happens when communities come together, when white folks, when black folks, when Latino folks, men, women, when everybody invests in a young person at a different juncture along their journey. Yeah. I'm the result of that. You were asked by Melissa Mark Vito, the Speaker of New York City Council, to co-chair the Council's Young Women's Initiative, a citywide effort to remove the systematic barriers to achievement that disproportionately affected girls of color. And you were named one of the top 25 most influential Black women in business by the Network Journal. By the way, congratulations on that, too. <laughs> in, in, in addition to launching the Ebony Vanguard. Can you share some of the accomplishments that you are most proud of with these ventures and what you believe we could do to empower individuals to reach their full potential, specifically women? I lost my aunt a couple of years ago and my aunt was a phenomenal Renaissance woman, right? She was a, high, a, a, a homemaker when I was a kid. You know, she was a gifted artist and went back to school later in life um, Fordham and NYU to become uh, an art therapist. But she was also like a marathon runner. She was a docent at the Bronx Zoo because they told her back in the 50s that, you know, they weren't giving uh, summer jobs to Black kids at the Bronx Zoo back then. And she she put it on her list. She was like, at some point, I'm going to work at the Bronx Zoo, right? And so she, she kind of made that happen for herself. And, you know, when I lost her, it's like all of the the external accomplishments didn't mean anything because it was the relationship, the connection, the sound of her voice. Um, so I don't get lost in what the world says that I've accomplished. It's like the, the human connection, the, the amazing people that I've met through my journey. It's the, it's my own family. It's my, my daughter whom I love. It's my, you know, being able to be a good daughter to my mother as she's aging. It's all of those, the people who are really going to miss me. You know what I'm saying? Like 
people will say, oh, that's sad as it pertains to my career. But the people who know me and love me and will really sense my loss are, you know, those are the things that really matter to me. And I think sometimes when you're on the climb, um, it's easy to forget that. But I think, you know, I'm, I'm at a point where, you know, listen, do I feel like I've accomplished everything that I wanted to? No. Are there still things that I feel like I want to do? Um, absolutely. But am I okay with where I am? Yeah, like if I never do, if I never have another job, if I never join another board, um, I have such amazing friendships and relationships and a, and a wonderful family that that's really where I find my sense of value. This brings me to something you're 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 getting more into the personal side of this, which I which we always love because you know it's one thing to talk about all your great accomplishments, which are really amazing and. You know, I, I I will continue saying congratulations, but moving forward uh, for our guests to really get to know you even further on this on a personal level, what is something about you that might surprise our listeners? My husband is 55. I hope he's not going to be mad that I shared that. And I'm 53. <laughs> and we became adoptive parents of a 12 and eight year old this year. Oh, for you. So after having four grown children between the two of us, um, you know, we have a, a seventh grader and a third grader in the house again. Uh -huh. um, and that's definitely kind of like upended my life and shifted my priorities, but in some unexpectedly wonderful ways. So, yeah, so that's the that's the newest thing that's going on. Wow. <laughs> I, well, that takes my breath away. I'll just share that with you. You have to be a very special person person to do that so it's just wow that's amazing we'll be right back after this message we are a team that has had an enduring influence on the nonprofit industry for more than three decades we pride ourselves on developing and delivering technology with a purpose software born of a genuine understanding and passion for cause we are relentlessly dedicated to our client success we are with our clients for good we are Ariva, tech with purpose, driven by cause. Ariva is the trusted advisor and market leader of fundraising, donor relationship management, and auction software and services. Exceed further, our evolutionary all-in-one digital fundraising and donor relationship management software is helping nonprofits worldwide further their mission, transform fundraising, and cultivate relationships with donors and constituents. Our Maestro Auction virtual, live, and silent auction software text-to-bid, virtual and mobile bidding software, and text-to-fund, text-based donation software are helping nonprofits raise billions of dollars through thousands of virtual fundraising events, charity auctions, and galas. Visit Ariva.com and reach out today and see how Ariva can help your nonprofit organization go further. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. For the next part of our show, we're going to hear from you, the audience, Jay, don't leave them waiting on any longer. Tell them what time it is. All right, David. Well, it's that time of, of the show where we get to play Ask the Maestro. And this is where we let the audience ask us anything they want to know. Uh, it's a chance to, uh, you know, fire some question or fire a question or two at us. And uh, we'll give a chance to, uh, to answer it. You can send your questions to us uh, by sending them to us online. And our first question comes from Liz. And she writes, uh, 
what is the best way to find new board members? And so that's a great question, Liz, David, and uh, Danielle, either of you want to dive in on that, how to find new board members? Danielle, would you like to take that first? Sure, that's, that's a, actually a good question. I was trying to formulate an answer. Um, so I'm not shy about asking people that I've met um, along the way um, and, and kind of making um, connections. So I'll give an example. I now have current Swarthmore board member is serving on the board uh, at here at Oliver Scholars. Served our time together, you know, just an occasional email to stay in touch. Um, and then when this opportunity became available, I invited him out for coffee, um, shared my excitement about the mission, tried to draw connections between his commitment to education at Swarthmore and his commitment um, to education here in New York City. And, and so that was um, how I recruited um, that, that board member. Um, also, you know, I do have the benefit of uh, being at the helm of an organization that has been around for quite some time. So I'm really proud of the fact that I have recruited three Oliver Scholars alumni uh, to go. serve on this board as well. Um, two of them uh, work in private equity and hedge funds and um, another is uh, an actress. So we want all of those perspectives. And I was actually going to offer that one of the great plays, if, you're, is your, if your organization has been around for a while, is the alumni, because the alumni understand the mission. And uh, and getting someone, a board member that, that believes in the mission and will promote the mission is, is, is key. And your alumni certainly knew that. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, that 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 that's great. I I, I think finding new board members is is always uh, a challenge. I think there's a lot of people out there. And one of the things when we're building a board, whether it was for the nonprofit that we sit on, um, is we come up with we don't want the same type of person sitting around the room with the same skills. And and what we do is we really try and define the different types of board members that we want. Like, like you mentioned, Danielle, you know, you've got an investment banker, you've got, you've got a real great mix there. And I think that is such an important thing to share with the audience. And, and when you're looking at, we need a business person, we need a nonprofit person, maybe we need a fundraising person, maybe we need a donor relationship, who's strong in the community that can put this together and give that voice out there. And, and, and when you start thinking about this, I also engage the board members to also share with our thoughts of who do you see that could help with the cause or who do you see that could help with this community and getting our message out there. And you'd be very surprised in finding new board members because I don't think it should always be on the CEO's shoulders. And when you have a board, that's part of one of the job responsibilities of a board member is to share ideas or share other board members that could have an impact on that. And that will be able to find you new ways of finding new board members as well. So great, great job, you know, on, on finding a diverse set of people, re regardless of their experiences. And I think it just adds so much more value to that. But thank you for the question, Liz. I hope that helps. Our next question comes from Anonymous, and they want to know, my boss does not want to do donor recognition, as they want to treat all donors the same, no favorites. Is this the right way to go about donor stewardship? Danielle? Uh, boo. <laughs> First of all, all of your donors, regardless of the size of their gift, 
should be a part of your donor recognition strategy. Um, and, um, you know, the reality is that um, when people have access not only to more of their personal resources, but also can position the organization to meet other donors with similar capacity, it just seems like bad business practice um, to not have a strategy um, that acknowledges their largesse. So, yeah. and I'll I'll jump in here just as a as a auctioneer for the last thirty some odd years. Donor recognition during an event is very important. Uh, it it uh, it acknowledges the larger donors uh, during the event. Uh, unless they choose, uh, and this is certainly something that they should be given an opportunity to opt out. And that's just that's just being respectful of them and asking them. It, it comes up a lot when we talk about matching funds during an event, as an example. We might have a large donor willing to give $50,000 in matching if we can pull $50,000 out of the audience, as an example. That $50,000 matching donor should be asked, is it okay if we say that you are the match or would you like it to be an anonymous match? and let that donor make the call on that. And sometimes they want that acknowledgement. Sometimes they want everybody in the room to know, no, I'm in for 50, you know, so come on, you guys, you know, dig in your pockets and pull it out. And sometimes they want to be uh, anonymous. And But that's just recognizing their personal wish. And, and you should be respectful of that and ask them ahead of time, how much publicity or no publicity would you like to have on this gift that you're, that you're giving? So that's just the, the auction perspective. So there we go. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, uh, the time has flown, Danielle. Thank you, thank you, thank you thank for you. for being such a terrific guest today. Uh, I mean, you know, the the depth of your experience and uh, and 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 your your willingness to share it so freely uh, with all of us and our audience, we certainly appreciate that very much. So, and uh, thanks for uh, th thanks for doing that today, and uh, I'll look forward to the ne the next episode of uh, Driven by Cause. David, back to you. Well, thank you, Jay. And, and I want to especially thank Danielle for her great insights and for being here with us today. I mean, what a great experience for all of us, for our audience. It was great with the interactions and it was truly fabulous having an opportunity to have you on our show today. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you. Well, for our listeners, make sure you subscribe to stay up to date on all new episodes and content. I also want to give special thank you to our amazing sponsors, Ariva and Microsoft for the industry's only completely integrated, fully automated, all-in-one digital fundraising, donor relationship management, healthcare hospitality, and auction software platform. We're so proud to be working with them on the show. And last, but certainly not least, thank you to all of our fantastic listeners. We hope you'll join us next time on Driven by Cause and make it a great day.